Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. How are you? Just checking in. How are things going? Things are good here. We are in full pack mode. Um, this will be one of the last things that I film here. I am filming with my my friend Alexa. She has so graciously offered her time, so we're going to be answering some of her questions and stuff, but that will come, that'll go out later. Um, that's a podcast and videos that will be released in like a couple of months. <clears throat> so yeah, we're just packing up. Movers are coming here in about a week. And so, yeah, anything you don't need in a week, it's packing. And it's it's interesting. I haven't moved in 10 years, which is other than my upbringing, where I was like brought home from the hospital to the same home I lived in until I went to college. And then it was when I met Sean, I think my mom, uh, you know, re rents a house that doesn't live there anymore and bought another home. Um, because, you know, being there where my dad was, was really hard for her, understandably so. And um, anyway, so needless to say, I have not moved a lot. Or I did not move a lot as a kid at all. And then after college, obviously, <clears throat> excuse me, if any of you went away to college, you know what I mean when you're like, you move from dorm room to dorm room each and every year, and we put our stuff in storage and then pull it back out. And then out of that, I moved in with a girlfriend, my girlfriend Nina and I lived together the first year out of school, you know, and then you do that, like every couple of years you move. And I got so in that rhythm that then I don't know if you guys heard Sean sneeze, but he just sneezed. Um, anyways, you get so in that rhythm that then when you don't, it's kind of weird. And now that we're moving again, I'm like, oh my God. And I'm finding all sorts of random stuff, which is kind of interesting. It's like a random, bizarre type of scavenger hunt, maybe. <laughs> anyway. Um, so yeah, so we're hanging in there trying to manage, trying to take care of myself because it is stressful. Even though I don't feel logically stressed, I know physically it's happening. And I know the upheaval of life when you move is always a little stressful, especially because we're moving across the country. So um, anyway, or halfway across the country, I should say. <clears throat> Excuse me, I just ate lunch and is really, <clears throat> I didn't even have any dairy. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, enough about me. Let's get into these questions. Now I have eight questions today. Oh, actually nine. I lied. We have nine. And that's mainly because um, I'm, you know, kind of in a rush. And also a couple of these questions are pretty long. So I want to be able to take my time with them and answer them properly. So let's get into it. Now, the first question says, hi, Katie, I'm 22 years old and have a rare genetic disease that is causing my body to fail. I have been sick since I was a baby. My digestive tract is paralyzed. So I have um, been tube fed for three years <clears throat> with one tube going into my small intestine to give me nutri nutrition, water and medication and another tube in my stomach to drain out the bile that builds up. Oh, that sounds horrible. I'm so sorry. My bladder's paralyzed too, so I have to insert a catheter and drain it every three hours so I don't rupture my bladder. I can't move my legs, so I'm a wheelchair user. I have a neurological disorder that causes episodes of convulsions that shut down my airway, but I remain conscious until I pass out from lack of oxygen. This sounds so traumatizing. I'm so sorry. I once had to be put on a ventilator briefly as I stopped breathing altogether during a convulsion episode. My organs and body systems are malfunctioning and then shutting down one by one. I've had 26 surgeries, 15 of them in the past three years. I've reached and gone beyond how much pain I can take. I'm prescribed daily fentanyl and morphine, which make the pain manageable, but still in pain 24-7. It's possible I only have, a, uh, only have several years left, but my doctors can't give a time frame as my health is so unpredictable. I could have anywhere from a month or two up to a decade or two. I've had brief discussions with my medical team about possibly withdrawing life-sustaining treatments and transitioning to comfort care only, which would cut my time down to weeks. 
That was a lot of background info, but my question is, how can I come to terms with and be at peace with the situation that I'm in and that my life is likely coming to an end sooner than I'd like? How can I be at peace with my death without wanting to, for it to come sooner? I'm in therapy, and this is a frequent topic of discussion, but I just can't seem to accept that this is the situation I'm facing. I'm terrified of the dying process and of leaving my family. However, continuing to live how I am now with never-ending traumatic medical events is terrifying too. I get it. I'll never have the life that I want, but how can I be okay with what I have and know I'm making decisions regarding stopping or continuing treatment because what's best for, it's what's best for me and not because of fear of death or of the suffering that comes with living? Any advice would mean a lot and sorry for such a heavy topic. I know when I put this as number one, I was like, we're just jumping in here because that's what we do. There's, you know, life is heavy. There are shitty situations and things that we can really struggle with. And first of all, I am so sorry. And fuck, man, that's, it is so traumatic. And I just, I can feel the weight of it through reading that background. And that's why I actually decided to read the whole question as is and not try to cut things out. Because I think it's kind of important for us all to, to hear where she's at and what's happening and yeah, where we're going, right? And so there's a lot to unpack. But the first part of the question is, how can I come to terms and be at peace with the situation I'm in and that my life is likely coming to an end sooner than I'd like? Now, I I know I've talked about grief a lot in the past. And grief, like I've said, often is attached to death, but not always. And in this case, it is attached to death, but it's more about it's more about the life that we we weren't able to have. And when it comes to, so I worked with a few women over the years in dealing with uh, miscarriages. And with regard to that, we talk about like the death of the dream of what the baby would be and would become. And I, I kind of want to apply that same idea here where it's like the death of the dream. It's the death of what we thought our life was going to be <clears throat> and giving ourselves time to feel it, to cry about it, to scream about it, to be angry I'm curious if you feel, I know physically you have limitations, but do you feel able emotionally to allow yourself to feel it? Because yes, it's heavy. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's fucking tragic and terrible and horrible. And But are you allowing yourself to experience those feelings as they come and go? Because I'm sure sadness rushes in and then along with it comes anger. And, you know, and there's all these emotions bubbling up in you. And I really think, Again, like the best way to run like acceptance is our goal. Okay. So if we work back from acceptance, I think a huge part of it is just acknowledgement that this is happening and acknowledgement of what you're feeling, because it's not just, it's not just that it's happening. It's, it's how we feel about it because that kind of rolls into the other questions where it's like, I'll never have the life that I want. You know, how can I be okay with what I have and know I'm making decisions regarding stopping. Like it's all of this is tied up in, in this. And I think the hugest component of it is, are you allowing yourself to feel it, to acknowledge it, to, to experience the grief? Because I feel like if we give ourselves an opportunity to just hold that space, like a therapist should be able to assist you with this. So I'd bring this up in therapy if you're not already doing it. And I hope and assume that you are, but it's just allowing for that space. And then I would even encourage you to take it a step further if you can is in like acknowledging, which, and 
I don't want to say that you're not doing these things. I'm just giving some ideas and advice. Okay. So don't think that I'm saying like, you're not doing this. Please do this. I'm just saying here, here are ideas. If you aren't already doing them, let's try them. And like when you said, I'll never have a life I want. Are we acknowledging those items? Are we able to do that? Because I do think there is something healing with doing that, with taking the time to write down the things that we aren't going to get to have or aren't going to get to experience because of our illness. And I think making that list and grieving them individually or as groups uh, could be really helpful. I also wonder if EMDR could be really beneficial for you because of the trauma and the symptoms that come along with that could be making your physical pain and physical symptoms worse. I don't know, but I we are connected, right? Mental and physical health, same thing, pretty much, you know, our brain's the hard drive of our body. And I know that when we have, you know, very overwhelming situations, very traumatic situations, especially like medical traumas, you've had repeated medical traumas, I think EMDR might be allow you to have some kind of reprieve, some kind of lessening of symptoms. I don't know, just throwing that out there as an idea. So consider that. And as much as you can, you know, journaling, talking about it. I know people like your family probably doesn't always want to talk about it, but find someone who's open to at least having those conversations with you. I would also encourage you to join a support group. Um, back in the day, so when I was in grad, was I an undergrad trying to go into grad school? I, I really have always in, not enjoyed, that's the wrong word, but I've always found uh, hospice work to be really fulfilling. I was very interested in, in that. And in trying to maybe work in that system at some point, I ended up working in the hospital system, but I didn't end up going into the hospice care. They weren't hiring at the time. And, you know, life is interesting that way. But one of my professors, Dr. Lisa Bauer, who I love, and she's amazing. I think she's in the Midwest now, but Lisa, we had so much fun. We used to drive down to San Diego and take these uh, hospice courses and or not hospice courses, but it was courses to work in hospice. And it was part of the grief and grieving course. And you could become a certified grief counselor. So it was like, on top of, you know, my psych degree, because at this point, I wasn't in graduate school, I was just going to start like the next semester, I could be a certified grief counselor. And I took all those courses. And the one thing that I will tell you, that they preached over and over and over and over and over again, is support groups for not only the people who are suffering, physically, but also their caretakers and family who are suffering in their own way as well. And there are care groups for or there are support groups for both types of people. And I even know personally, one of my uh, one of my favorite psycho- uh, psychiatrists in the area, Dr. Brofman, he used to say that he felt all alone, his wife had uh, some chronic illness issues. And he'd felt so alone and so guilty for being tired of taking care of her until he found his support group. And so anyways, I say all of that just to say that I think there is some healing and some peace that comes in those support groups. And from hearing maybe what you can't find words to express said by someone else, I'll tell you even personally being, I've been in support groups off and on, you know, through my teenage and uh, college years. And sometimes people in groups just use their own words. And I, it's like, I get to, I can hear it. And I can absorb it. And it feels like it's the words that I was trying to find, but wasn't able to. And there's just something really powerful. Also, just the reminder that like, we're not alone. And so that would be my, I would encourage you to try that out. I would encourage you to 
to find a group, a support group, ask the, your hospital. They probably have things. Everything's online now. So just start asking around. Ask your therapist, ask your treatment team, anybody who you see. Ask them if there's a support group for people with chronic illnesses, because I'm sure there is. I would even Google it again, because everything's online right now. Thanks, you know, thanks to COVID. That's actually one of the silver linings is that it can be easier, especially for those of us who, you know, mobility is is difficult. We can hop on our computer and we can get some support. So along with allowing yourself to feel what you got to feel, I don't care if it's extreme rage and anger, that's okay. Maybe if you can't feel, you don't feel like you can express it physically, maybe it's something that we try to uh, listen to music that supports that or make art of it or, you know, make a collage or anything, anything that we can create. Maybe you can create something on like your iPad or your uh, computer, something that represents how you're feeling. And maybe doing that every day just to get it out um, can be really, really helpful. And yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry. It, it fucking sucks. And I, I wish I could do something to make it better for you. But I think allowing ourselves to feel what we feel and not thinking that we have to have the answers. We have to know what we want to do right now. Because also, I know, I know that the, the pain and the medical complications can make you feel like you just want it end it now, you know, because it's not going to get any better. And we can feel like that's the only logical choice. But no one says that today is the day you have to make that answer that make that choice and, and come up with that answer. You can take your time. You can think about things. You can allow yourself to feel what you want to feel. Is there anything that you would want to do that you're able to do now? Maybe that, you know, now's the time we try to, to make time for that, make, take that opportunity to do it. Um, you know, I know things can be difficult, but that doesn't mean we have to completely give up hope. I feel like a little bit of hope's not crazy. It, it's it's part of what makes us human. What you know, sometimes what's what we need. So anyway, those are just my thoughts. Um, I hope that that is somewhat helpful. Again, I don't have a an answer for you. You know, other than some of the things that you can do to allow yourself to feel it and get support. Um, I would also encourage your family, your your parents or siblings, if you have any, to get into some kind of support group as well, because grief is hard. Grief sucks. And knowing that other people are in it with us and having other people share their insights can be super, super healing. Okay, let's move into question number two. And it says, hi, Katie, I would love to hear your thoughts on why therapists are so stubborn that their way of being a therapist is the only right way. For instance, I was watching another therapist here on YouTube. Don't worry, I like your channel better. Winky face, that cracks me up. <laughs> it made me giggle when I first read it, so I had to share it here. Um, so another therapist here on YouTube who was absolutely horrified that a therapist in a TV show hugged a client at the end of a session. I wonder why they'd be horrified. Because she thinks that there can be no touching in the therapeutic relationship. Wow. I then read a book, nonfiction, where the psychiatrist had people in group therapy for years and years and, for example, would attend clients' weddings, which I thought was a bit strange, but the client seemed very happy and helped by his personal approach. So then I thought, who am I to judge? And sometimes you seem to have some principles that I, as a psychology student, don't really agree with. So what determines right and wrong? And why are therapists sometimes closed-minded in those regards? I'm genuinely curious. I thought this was a great question. And I love, I always love our audience for, uh, for challenging me to think about things and be cons uh, consider, because I definitely have my own strong opinions about therapeutic approaches and techniques and things that I would and wouldn't do. And a lot of it has to do with the modalities, meaning the styles of therapy that we practice tend to become kind of part of the way that we are a therapist. Does that make sense? Like 
for instance, I do a lot of CBT and DBT techniques, and that those are the tools that I pull from. Although I also do some somatic experiencing stuff. And as I've read stuff over the years for you guys and done research, then I'll pull from those things too, because, you know, also you guys will tell me certain things that I um, should try. And, you know, I just kind of grab and most therapists do this. You pick and choose from a lot of different things, but we can get stuck in our own belief system or our own rut about what's okay and what's not okay. Now, I think some some therapists have egos. A lot of professionals have egos, let's be honest. And especially those in the like health field. Um, I've struggled years with psychiatrists, especially when I worked in the hospital system, trying to get them to hear me as a lesser than, you know, person within the system because I'm not a medical doctor because I'm a licensed therapist. They wouldn't want to hear me out even though they spent like five minutes with the patient and I had spent 50 minutes, you know, for months, they still didn't really want to take my advice or hear me out on things. And so, so anyways, um, I think some people get egos and think that they know, know what's best. I think others, and for me, in my opinions, because I definitely have strong opinions about certain things, like I believe in treatment plans, I believe, a, a, you know, therapists shouldn't share too much about themselves. All of that is based on a couple of things. Number one, the modalities that I choose to use in my practice. And number two, what I've seen work and hurt and hinder progress in my sessions with my patients or things I've heard reported from either you or my patients about past experiences, right? Good or bad. And so I've kind of just gathered things throughout the years and and I'm very big on boundaries because DBT is my, my jam, man. So boundaries are very important and I might be more rigid than others. But I'd like to think that I personally wouldn't be like appalled or horrified by any, unless it was unethical or illegal uh, things that were happening. I, I don't think I'd ever be appalled or horrified by it. But that's why I'm not a big fan. And I don't know if this is the video uh, that you're like referencing. If this is what was happening because I don't know who this person was or what this video was. But I that's why I'm not a huge fan of, you know, therapist reacts to blah, 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 or because people definitely amplify their re quote unquote reaction to engage with people and to make it more entertaining. And I know that this is to the detriment of my channel and my views as I don't do that kind of thing. Yes, it garners a lot of views. Yes, people love that type of content. But I just prefer to, to talk to you guys to educate and to do things a little bit differently just with what feels good for me. Now, am I going to judge that therapist and be like, you know, damn it anyways? No, that's fine. They can this is their channel, they do what they want. But I think by and large, people who are professionals, Number one, like to do things the way they like to do things because we can be really stubborn and think that we know best and we're not always challenged to think differently. Number two, we have, you know, egos about it. And number three, it could be based on the modalities that we practice. So there's quite a few different reasons that I think people like therapists could be really stubborn, but there are ethical stuff. Like even in this question, like the no touching a therapeutic relationship you can definitely hug a patient if you feel like it's appropriate and it's okay and it's, you know, they've asked for it. You as the therapist should never ask for the hug. That would be, that's like putting the patient on the spot and that's not appropriate. You can see how these, if you are, if you dig into law and ethics, there's a lot of gray areas and some therapists get so scared about something happening that they have like these lines they've drawn where it just is protecting because it's protective. Sorry, I didn't enunciate there. Um, like even just because Sean and I are moving, I was going through my filing cabinet and I found my stack of uh, books 
professional psychotherapy never includes sex. And these are books you're supposed to hand to someone if they've ever told you that they've had a therapist or other professional, uh, you know, psychiatrist, things like that, uh, try to be get romantic with them in some way or try to have a sexual relationship with them. You're supposed to hand them that book and be like, it should never include it. That was unethical and that's not right, you know? And so I could see maybe the no touching. I brought that up because I could see maybe this therapist thought of like, no touching ever could come from that because they're thinking, you know, um, professional psychotherapy never includes sex. Although I think a hug every now and again is perfectly fine and acceptable. Um, and that's why it's important you find a therapist that works for you also. Cause I could, I could really talk about this as you can see, but the last little bit that I really want to pinpoint and talk about is when the person mentions that they read a book, nonfiction, where the psychiatrist had uh, people in group therapy for years and years, and for example, would attend clients weddings. Now, this is a gray area and something that I've had. So I've had a few colleagues in the past get in trouble for things like this, when someone then later filed a complaint, or they had some issues, because this is a gray kind of overstepping boundary area. But I will be honest that in my practice, I have attended a wedding and a quinceanera. And I did it not because I wanted to go. This is a very different way of attending and doing is it was more of a congratulations slash it meant a lot to them that I was there because they saw me as part of that process. And I actually even attended a graduation, a high, a high school and college graduate. So I've attended some events. I don't do it regularly. But it's something that you can do if they ask you to and you get to decide. And for all of my patients, when I did do something like this, you never stay for like the party, like in a wedding, you don't stay for the reception other than to like, you know, congratulate, say hi, do the thing you're supposed to do, leave the card or whatever. And then you leave. But you don't like get drunk with, you know, it's like not acceptable, but it's more about being there for them as a as a way to celebrate their successes and the progress they've made and, and being, being part of that, you know? So that's, it's, it's a gray area. Again, I don't do it a ton, but I, but that's why people do that. And that is a little strange. Not everybody's comfortable. And like I said, I haven't done it in years, uh, probably five years, four years, because I had a, a call, a couple colleagues, like have issues with stuff like that being brought up and they'd had a, you know, people get, I know this sounds wild to say, but people get complaints um, pretty, not regularly, but sometimes, and they'll bring up instances like that where, you know, you're at said event and they're like, why would you do that? You know, that clearly shows an overstep of boundaries and it's, it's ethically gray. And so you can, you can see why it's not like a preferred thing, but sometimes it means a lot to the patient. And I think it, it can be therapeutic when done properly. Again, I just kind of pop in and out of those situations, show up for them, make sure they saw me. Um, a talk ahead of time about what they expect me to do. If anybody asks who I am, I will say what they want me to say about how I know them. Um, you know, if they want a photo, we'll take a photo and then we leave, you know, I leave. So yeah, I hope that kind of explains it. But really, it's more about like, therapists are people too, and people get stubborn in their ways a lot. And I try not to have too strong of reactions. Hopefully, you don't see that I have too strong of reactions. But I think Every therapist figures out their own way of being. And that's why it's important when we're finding a therapist, we find one that fits with us. So, okay. I hope that helps. I hope that gives you some insight. I found that to be such an interesting question. So thank you for asking it. Let's move on to question number three. 
It reads, Hey Katie, I've been in therapy for about blah, blah, blah. I've been in therapy for about two and a half years. Sorry about that. And starting to finally feel like life is good and my brain doesn't spin off all the time. Yay! Working on allowing myself to feel good. I love this. But I'm struggling with my thoughts. They run so fast. Trying to stop, 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 stop them is like throwing a stop sign onto a highway. It just gets run over. Sometimes it makes, uh, makes it hard to work. Other times, work is a great distraction. I feel like there are constantly movies running in my brain, stories that don't exist, sometimes good ones, sometimes scary. It's hard to keep my thoughts slow and in the present. Also, because of this, talking is really hard for me. I don't know where to start and suddenly the thought is so complex that I can't even say it out loud. So I just don't speak when I feel like the thoughts and trying to see the real world is just too much. She's smelling a J-bomb and I'm trying, but I really can't write that fast and stripping this text down is hard work. I agree. I don't think journaling is the one for you. So don't worry. I'll, I'll hold on to that J-bomb. It happens in therapy a lot. I don't think my therapist knows why I'm talking much. I'm not talking much. It also happens outside of therapy and writing this down almost gives me a heart attack, even knowing that no one knows who I am. Yes, there's a lot of shame and anxiety involved and I'm intellectualizing my way out of this rambling thread. But how can I talk about this? Where does it come from? How can I get better? Obviously, there's a lot more going on, but no one will read that much. I, I read. I read it all. I'm not going to apologize for my English since it's not my first language because it's probably not that bad. Hashtag bridge statement. I love that. Welcome to my racing thoughts. Lots of love from Germany. So I love this because I think a lot of us feel this way where it's like our thoughts spawn thoughts. <laughs> it's like they're just breeding and one turns into a hundred and a hundred turns into a thousand and a thousand turns into a million, blah, blah, blah. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And traditional thought stopping might not work for you. So the stop, stop, stop and the journaling, let's just ignore that. Now, this is going to sound weird. But what if we set aside some time every day, and maybe it's the first thing we do in the day, where I think we're going to just to preface this with, we're going to have to do some trial and error to try out some different things. Okay, and I have a couple of ideas and then one that you've probably already considered, but I'm gonna mention it in case you haven't. Now, what if instead of trying to stop them? What if we were curious about them? Again, we don't have to write anything down, don't have to put it into words. But what if instead of trying to stop them all together, what if we participated a little? I, we're just, we're, we're being scientists here. We're doing some research. And I want to know if you listen to them and consider them, do they get faster or slower? Let me know. We have to check in, okay? If they get slower, and here's what our answer is. Our answer is, they just get louder and faster because it's like worry thoughts and they run away with each other. Um, and they like build on each other, right? It's like they they don't feel heard, so they keep multiplying. You know, it's almost like a toddler might start throwing a little bit of a tantrum, but if we don't tend to, or even a baby, let's just say a baby because it's easier. If a baby kind of starts fussing and we don't tend to them, they can it can turn into a full-blown loud cry, right? And it can escalate from there where they do the when they can't even get their breath in because they're completely melting down. So that can happen. And it's almost like our thoughts could be doing that. I don't know if that's it. But I'm just curious if we didn't try to stop them or ignore them and instead tapped in and paid attention. What happens? Let me know. Does that help? That may work. Now on the other side of that, 
is there a certain theme to them? And can we check our facts on it? So a lot of times these worry, anxious, running thoughts have themes. And the theme could be something like, I'm not doing enough. I'm not good enough. It could be uh, something bad is going to happen. Like, where is it coming from? Because if we can kind of trace back a little bit to the origin of these thoughts or whatever the main worry is, that gives us information about what to work on in therapy. And if you find the worry thoughts are something like something bad is always going to happen, I would encourage you to in some way let your therapist know that you might be struggling with OCD because your worry thoughts have become, you know, I don't know if you feel like you have to do compulsions. Obviously, those are things you check in with, but you can just let her know that like my worry thoughts are born out of X or Y or whatever. Or if our worry thoughts are more, um, you know, ruminating on the past and the future and blah, 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 all over the place about things we should have, could have, would have done, things that we, we want to do, but we don't think it's ever going to happen, you know, all of that, then it's definitely straight up anxiety. And there are ways to work on this. I have an anxiety workbook uh, that I did a few years ago, and then I've completely redone it and revamped it. It'll be coming out here. It came out May 1st. So it might, I think it actually already is out now. I'm, I'm trying to think of when this is going live because I'm recording this before we move. Um, but yeah, so you could check out that anxiety workbook. It has a ton of tools and ton of uh, skills and things you can do. Um, I have tons of videos about anxiety. My true belief about anxiety is that it's born out of our our struggle with self-confidence. And I have videos about how to build self-confidence, like noticing our self-talk, right? What are we saying? Also putting positive out there in the world. So being nice to strangers or just thinking nice things about people. Then we can do those bridge statements. That's helped too. It's kind of in the, you know, in the thoughts and stuff. And then building mastery is another great thing, like getting good at something. Those are just some ways that we could work on ourselves and our confidence so that maybe our anxiety goes down. Again, we're going to be detectives, we're going to or researchers, we're going to try out some of these hypotheses and see if any of them work, if any of them fit. But I, those are just some of the tools and techniques that I would kind of want to try with you just to get an idea of it. And then finally, and I don't know how this works in Germany, but medication can help with this somewhat. Now, I know a lot of people don't love medication. And I understand and there can be plenty of tools like you could try to force yourself into like guided meditation, you know, there's tons of apps like Headspace or Unplug or any of those that have guided meditations that you can use. You could try those and see if that kind of calms your your anxious mind and your what we call the monkey mind where it swings from thought to thought. Um, that might help. It, it technically will over time, but it can be really hard and trying at the beginning. But if you can stick with it and try and focus on the breathing and do it, that could help too. But but medication could be there as well because, uh, you know, medication for anxiety or like SSRIs, SNRIs is what I'm talking about. They can really help with this and maybe take the edge off, meaning just bring down the the speed with which your thoughts race so that you can feel like you can function. Like, because if work, it's really hard or it's just too hard to get out of it. And none of the regular thought stopping techniques are working. And maybe we try the other things that doesn't work medication's there for you. It doesn't mean you have to be on it forever, but it could be something that we utilize so we can figure out what's causing this and what the trigger is. Because there's definitely a reason and there's definitely some kind of root. We just have to figure out what that is. Where is that coming from? What am I really stressed, worried, overwhelmed about? But yeah, let's be curious. We don't have to be judgmental. It's okay to to learn. And, and again, I wish I had, a, like, I feel like this is like the theme so far is like, I wish I had a straight and direct answer, but those are just some of my thoughts and some of my hypotheses. And I would love for you to test them out and give them a try. Racing thoughts are very common, especially when it comes to anxiety disorders. And if we can figure out either the root of our anxiety 
or whether we can figure out, you know, um, a medication that works for us or a, a way to calm our mind, whether that's through meditation. Also, exercise helps some of my patients, but I know that can be tricky now with COVID. Um, but only it only works to distract for so long. So it can be like a way to, to distract and deal. But at the end of the day, we want to make it so that this isn't continuing to happen. And once we stop distracting, boom, the thoughts come. So we'll have to find some ways to kind of cope with the root of that, whether it's like lack of self-confidence or, you know, um, maybe it's something to do with the way we were raised. Maybe when our parents was, one of our parents was really anxious, that can happen, um, can cause that as well. Anyway, keep me posted. I hope some of those ideas give you a place to start, but it really, it will really help. At least it might not make it perfect or go away, but it will help. Okay. Question number four says, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. says, I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about being self-destructive and what that means in relation to our mental health. I always hear the word being thrown around and I'm just wondering if you could explain it a little bit. Does it mean smoking, taking drugs, starving yourself, etc.? I feel like I've always been a very self-destructive person, starving myself, self-harm, smoking, etc. And I'm just wondering if that's something that I should talk to someone about. Is it a result of trauma or is it just something we start to do? Thank you. Lots of love from England. Happy to talk about this. Now, self-destructive behaviors can be a lot of things. I've had patients use self-destructive behavior. It's a, it's a defense mechanism, by the way. And some for some, it's a coping skill. So self-destructive behaviors could be anything from isolating to not feeding ourselves to uh, smoking, drinking, you know, self-harm, things like that. Um, we can like implode our relationships. We can like start fights with people. There's a lot of self-destructive, uh, even impulsive spending and buying. We can put ourselves into a financial stress, financially stressful situation. There's a lot of ways we can self-destruct. And I'm always interested for, I'm always looking for the why. So why are we self-destructing? What is it triggered? When did this start? Do we feel the urges to smoke, self-injure, starve ourselves at a certain time after certain things have happened? Can we track that back? Can we be a little bit more aware? Because it's the mindfulness and awareness that will help us better understand why we're doing it so that we can stop doing it. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Now, when it comes, and that's how it relates to our mental health is we can do all these things that like make our life harder. And I know a lot of people would think that it's, we can also have self-destructive thoughts. So we can have what I would call like, it's a non-behavioral self-destruction where we just have thoughts about like, well, this is never going to work out. So I'm not even going to apply for that. And we can not do things like have the absence of behaviors because of our self-destruction. So don't always think that we will see something. It's almost what we call in the psychology field, we call it like negative symptoms and positive symptoms. Now, negative symptoms are the, when something's missing positive symptoms when you add something to it. So a positive symptom would be like me uh, smoking or drinking. I'm adding something to my to myself and my environment. Now a negative one would be like me not showering or me not engaging with people or something. I'm taking something away, right? And both those are both very important to look at. And we really do it as a way to, for this couple, there's a ton of reasons, but I'm gonna give you some like general themes, okay? So we can be self-destructive for one, because it's very comfortable. Now I know you're thinking, Katie, self-destruction is really fucking uncomfortable. I don't mean comfortable, like enjoyable. I mean, we're used to it. We know how it feels and we know what to expect. And the opposite, maybe, I don't know, enjoyment, loving ourselves, posit thinking positively, that seems overwhelming and scary 
And we don't know where that's going to take us. So we just would rather stay away. So self-destruction can feel very comfortable. We can also do it number two, because the thought of being happy or even the thought of feeling any feelings, uh, negative or positive, however you want to rank them, although all feelings are fine and they're all just feelings, right? That's all they are. The, the thought of even feeling a feeling just seems overwhelming. So we'd rather numb out because most like starving myself, self-harm, smoking, you know, that all seems very numbing. And a lot of self-destructive stuff is like a, a distraction away from the other things. So it's distracting us from the feelings that we maybe aren't ready to feel or don't really want to feel or aren't really sure, you know. And so we can do that so that we don't have to deal with it. And also third, I do want to say this, and I don't mean it in the way that you like, I don't mean it that we're doing this for attention. So don't, uh, don't think that that's how I'm talking about this. What I mean is, this might be the only way this self-destructive behavior might be the only way that we get needs met. And what I mean by needs is that a lot as humans, we all need love, support to feel heard and understood. We need that connection with others. And sometimes in dysfunctional families or emotionally absent, maybe workaholic parents, we can feel like the only way for us to get their attention or their praise or for them to even take time off of work to spend time with us is when we're in treatment or when we're in the hospital or when we're doing self-destructive behaviors, you know, um, that, or maybe they only show care and concern when we're starving ourselves that, you know, so there can be that reason too. And that can, even when we move out of our home, that can still follow us. And that can be the way that we think we can get people to give us the love and attention that we need. Again, being attention seeking, I know it's gotten a bad rep online and people talk about it like it's horrible, but we're all attention seeking. We all need attention. I really wish we'd stop talking about that in a bad way and start talking about like the whys behind it and understanding like that it's just a human condition, but all of us go about it in different ways because that's really the truth. Um, so yeah, it, it's definitely not a healthy thing, but that doesn't make it bad. Like it should be shame filled. It's just, we all do unhealthy things, right? Um, okay. And the final component of this is, is it a result of trauma or just something that we start to do. It can be a result of trauma. Everyone's going to be different. And I know that answer sucks, but that's what I got. And I'm sorry. Trauma could cause this definitely because numbing out is very, some can feel very necessary when we feel overwhelmed by an experience or a situation or multiple experiences and situations. And it's not just something people start to do, but it can be a way that you cope. And so I guess just being really curious about when your urges to starve yourself, self-injure and smoke occur. And um, I have videos about coping skills. I have videos about safety plans. Um, I talk about impulse logs all the time. Those are all ways that we can better manage. But if we can figure out what your triggers are and why we're doing it, kind of like what purpose it serves, I think it's the numb out. But the more we learn about why we're using those self-destructive behaviors, the better able we'll be to like have tools to fight back against them, right? Because they serve a purpose. So we need to fill the void with something and we don't want it to be that. So we have to come up with other things to do, meaning like, you know, again, going back to like the reasons we are self-destructive. Once we know that, then we can look for ways to better fill that void. Like, is it, I need to do inner child work because my parents were emotionally absent. And so I need that work first. I need to see a therapist or is it, I need more contact with people. I need more attention from others. I'm very isolated. How can we get that? Can we join a group? Can we talk to other people? You know, considering those things, I think would be really 
it'll be really helpful. Once you kind of know where it's coming from, then we can get into some of the ways to better manage it. With that, let's move into question number five. It says, Katie, it has been three months since I first asked this and I would really like an answer, but I never get enough likes. Well, you got to answer today. And also just FYI, you guys, on my Patreon page, if you have a question that you really need answered, you at the $20 tier and above each month, I answer your questions. I reach out to you via message, ask you for your questions. I pull them together and we have a live stream. And it's usually like anywhere from three to four hours long. So I answer a lot of questions, usually anywhere from 30 to 50 sometimes. So you can pop over there. Okay. Um, is it normal to put yourself aside and want to help others, especially after a death of a loved one? My stepsister passed away last night or last year, right before Christmas. And I want to make sure her five sons are doing okay, because not only did they lose their mom, but it was during the pandemic. Would this be considered complicated grief or trauma? I think a lot of times in times of crisis, which is what this is, the death of a loved one is a crisis right? Things are, you can be in shock, we can be overwhelmed. Grief might not have even hit yet because there's so much to do when someone passes away, which no one told me that before my dad died, that like, there's so much logistical shit you have to do when someone passes away that you can get like caught up in that for like, honestly, probably six months. Getting things sorted and paperwork and all that garbage can keep you busy and distracted. So grief sometimes comes later. Now, putting yourself aside and wanting to help others, I don't think is a complicated grief or trauma. Definitely, you could have those things, but it wouldn't be because of that. I think when she, because she has five sons, and you're just wanting to make sure that they're okay, you're, you're nurturing them, you're being the, you know, kind of their surrogate mom, while while you figure stuff out. And they lost, you know, you lost your stepsister, they lost their mom and your family and you're working it out. I mean, I do, I do think that if you aren't doing anything for yourself, meaning you're not eating enough, you're not showering, you're not feeding your, you're not like nourishing your body, um, that that would be worrisome. And I would be worried about that. But other than that, I think it's kind of normal for us to kind of come together and like group. I mean, I think everybody who's lost a loved one would say that like family and people you knew and don't even, maybe you don't even talk to that often come out of the woodwork and like bring you casseroles. And or maybe it's cause I grew up in like the country, but everybody stopped by with like, we got you a spiral cut ham. Here's potato casserole. Here's the, we had so much food and it was just my mom and I, cause my brother was in the Peace Corps. So he didn't even make it back for that. And so it, you know, you have all of this food and all this stuff. And I think it's, but I'm just saying that cause it's normal for family to come together. And I bet you're, uh, you know, your nephews are really grateful for you. But I also want to throw in there that I think you should be, you should now, it's been a year, you should be able to put yourself first again, because we're, we're out of that crisis zone. It's not to say that the pain is gone. It's not to say that the grief is gone. I'm just saying that the crisis is over. It's not active anymore. And now I want you to allow yourself to grieve. I would, based on this question, because I, I don't know all the information, I would assume maybe it's less of like complicated grief and more delayed. It's just delayed grief because you didn't have an opportunity to grieve it earlier. And that sucks, but it was something that you, you a decision you made to take care of your nephews. Um, yeah. And also death can be traumatizing depending on how, what happened and how, you know, how it happened. I definitely think that a death could be a, a trauma. 
Um, but that would be something that I would want you to talk through with a therapist. We'd want to see someone, see a licensed professional to get assessed for things. Because based on this question, the limited information that I have, I think you definitely went into like mom mode, went into protection or nurturing mode, put yourself last. Like a lot of us throw ourselves into things to distract from the pain, which totally makes sense. And now that the crisis is over, you're kind of left wondering probably like, is this complicated grief? Why do I feel so shitty still? It's been a year. I encourage you, instead of considering the time since your sister passed or your stepsister passed away, consider the time that you started allowing yourself to feel it, which sounds like it might be like today. Because it's in that allowing yourself to feel it that you start to find healing and and grief doesn't go away completely. I'd like to tell you it does, but it doesn't. But you allow yourself to at least work through it to a point where you can function in your life again and you don't think about it 24-7 and you don't cry about it every day. It just kind of pops up here and there because that's grief, you know. Um, and I think the more we fight back against or the more we try to numb out or distract with other things, the only the longer the pain will hang around or the the grief will kind of just linger for longer than it really needs to so working with someone giving yourself the space and time to feel it will be healing and will help you move through this and i again i'm so sorry for your loss okay let's move on to question number six and it says hi katie i have a question related to sexual trauma is it also called sexual abuse if it was done by someone you love and they didn't mean it badly or sexually hmm I had a parent who was very open about sexuality and wanted to break the taboo that you shouldn't touch a child in intimate places. I didn't mind at the time because it was loving, lovingly, and I thought it was normal, but now I'm scared to engage in sexual relations because it was abusive. I'm not sure my fear of intimacy comes from these experiences because it wasn't done with the intention of power or lust, but a form of love and sexual education. I feel sad for that person to tell someone because that person didn't mean it the way that way at all. Does this happen more often? And how do you look at this? I'm sorry for my English. Your English is impeccable. No, no problem. Okay, let's talk about this because that's sexual abuse. And it doesn't, the thing that is hard for people to understand, and this is kind of where grooming comes in. And I I've talked about grooming off and on. And um, it's a topic that we can dig into more if, if you want. But grooming really is when someone like slowly manipulates usually children, but someone younger than them by becoming friends with them, slowly kind of isolating them a little bit from their family, telling them not to tell them they don't get our relationship, right? They kind of try to make it like, it's just you and I, and then they slowly desensitize you to what would be considered sexualized behavior, which is what this is. And we can say it all we want that it, you know, it wasn't out of a form of for power or lust, but form of love and sexual education. No, you were you were uh, sexually abusing a child and you're too young to consent and that's not okay. And just because you loved someone doesn't mean that they won't hurt you. And I know that that is very hard to accept. And I also want you to know that it is it is completely okay and very common to acknowledge the abuse and the issues that you're having now as a result and still love that person and see them as you know, a parent or a guardian or a sister, brother, whatever, you know, and care about them. That happens all the time. Um, I especially have a lot of patients over the years and even viewers who've told me that that they've fallen in love with their abuser and then there's shame and embarrassment with that and confusion around the fact that, well, then they go into prison or then, you know, my parents wouldn't let us see them anymore or, you know, all of this stuff. It can be very complicated and it's really, really important to talk to a therapist about it. And so, yes, it's still called sexual abuse because, it was sexual in nature. 
It doesn't have to be having sex. They should not be doing that to you. And there's a reason that you don't touch children in intimate places. It's not a taboo thing. It's the way that it is and way it should be. Children are innocent. Children are uh, too young. Children don't understand. And we have to protect them, especially from abusers. And yes, children can be curious. And yes, children, um, you know, should learn how to take care of themselves slowly but surely, but that's not the way to do it. And you don't teach children about sex education that way. Children can learn through images and uh, diagrams. And that's how I learned. And they're, they're, I, no one needed to touch me to, to tell me about it. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's very inappropriate. It is abusive. And even as I talk about it, you guys can tell I'm like, I'm, I'm very upset with that person. Not the person who asked the question, the person who did the abusing. And so, um, yes, I'm sorry that this is affecting you, but I, I'm not surprised it's affecting you. That that's, that's not appropriate. And there is a reason that you don't touch children that way. There's a reason it's taboo because it's wrong. It's not taboo. It's wrong. Um, so I would, I would want to redo that language to that's not the right word. And I think that, you know, because children don't understand, they can get, we can get ourselves in situations that aren't safe and we don't know how to say no. And we think everything is fine because we trust in our adults, right? Because they're the ones that are supposed to take care of us, supposed to tell us what's right and wrong. And we learn from that. But when someone takes advantage of that, it's, it's very upsetting to me. And I'm sorry that that happened to you. And I would, I would reach out to a therapist, start talking about it, start processing it so, so that you can live a healthy, happy sex life as an adult because, you know, don't allow that person to take any more from you and try to pretend that it's normal because that was definitely kind of grooming behavior. They did it slowly, tried to tell you it was this, it was done, you know, for sex education and out of love. A lot of, unfortunately, a lot of abusers do that and this doesn't make it not abuse. It's just a different way to manipulate and so I'm sorry that that happened to you. Okay. Question number seven says, hi, Katie. I'm embarrassed about asking these questions, so I hope no one I know sees them. You're safe in our community. Do not worry. I had an emotionally unavailable mother growing up. When I was 16, I opened up to her about my male and female cousins sexually assaulting me on different occasions. I can't seem to remember much about what her initial reaction was, but I remember she basically said that I should let it go and I'll feel better. Oh, no. Never again did I talk to her about anything. I suffered from depression, eating disorders, self-harm, traumatic experiences, and suicidal thoughts for years. And I'm now 23 and have come to the realization that throughout my life, I have yearned for attention, affection, and love from older women who I tend to attract. You know, the you had that mom hole because your mom, that void, kept trying to fill it with other women because she didn't fill it. These older women have been teachers, school counselors, and recently my midwife. I start to yearn for them the moment they give me any sort of feeling like they care or any type of motherly affection. At first, at first, it starts off as messaging back and forth, then them helping me through a past trauma. Then I become very attached and turns into an obsession to talk to them, see them, and simply hope that they don't leave me. Sounds maybe a little like borderline personality disorder to me. I've never acted on my feelings and I've always kept them inside because I'm weirded out by the fact that I feel this way. I wonder, have, I, I'll read on, but I'd be curious if there's ever been any urges to self-injure because a lot of times when we're kind of like that quiet borderline and we like hold it in, it, it, depression is very common, anxiety is very common, and self-injury is very common. Um, okay, but last year, 
after my long-term relationship ended, I had nowhere to go. And I reached out to my sixth grade teacher who I've kept in contact with since sixth grade. I moved in with her. And as time went on, I opened up to her about my feelings I had because living with her brought the whole mothering things back all over again. Well, it destroyed what we had. She was weirded out and I felt so upset. Is it possible that I created something in my mind that was clearly not real? How do I stop these attachments to older women that give me the slightest bit of affection and attention? The same obsession and attention is happening now with my therapist and midwife. I had a baby back in February 2021. Um, I'm being very hard on myself and not opening up to my therapist because I'm afraid to overstep boundaries and I've canceled many appointments with my midwife for postpartum depression because I'm afraid my attachment will get the best of me. I'm also a lesbian, so I feel embarrassed and like they'll feel grossed out. Oh, I'm so sorry. That shouldn't. Okay, we'll get into this. I've seen many videos where you cover this, but I need more answers and more talk on the topic. Sorry, it's so long. I can't explain it any other way. That is fine. Let's get into this and we'll get to it in order here. So the, the woman, uh, the sixth grade teacher, your first question says she was weirded out and felt so upset as felt and I feel so upset. Is it possible I created something in my mind that was clearly not real? It's not that you created something in your mind that wasn't real. The What happens is we are trying to turn one relationship into another and it just can't. We're trying to turn a relationship that we've had with a teacher over the years and kept in touch with what, what she probably saw as, you know, kind of just like teacher student, but we're really, you know, close and I'm part of like her support system. Seeing herself as probably part of your family in some way, but trying to put someone into that mother figure and that you're like obsessed with them and you need, you need them around all the time. You need to talk to them and you just love seeing them and you want to be with them forever. And I'm not saying romantically, I'm talking like platonically, like family. When you try to place someone who is a family friend or close friend of yours into that mother role, it doesn't work because 99% of the time that person also won't work for you because, and I'll get into that a little later, but it never ends up working out. But trying to fill that can be overwhelming to someone who saw it, like, as I, as I said, you know, just like as a casual uh, family friend helping you out in a tough time and like happy to be there and support you and all of that. That's totally fine. But again, we can't place them into that deep mother role because that's not who they are, right? And the reason that that will never work is because when we when we have, I would suspect this is borderline personality disorder, or at the very least, uh, some attachment based issues, and maybe complex trauma. But when we try to put somebody into that hole, we are putting all of our emotional stability, our well being and our mental health as a whole in their control. And that's what's really dangerous about it, because we cannot rely on other people 100% of the time. People are going to misstep. They're going to not show up for us because they had to do something else. They're going to not get back to us right away or maybe not return our call for a couple of days because things are crazy. Life is busy. People have their own lives. By That's why it's so dangerous to try to take that person and place them in this void because they're going to let us down. They're going to not be available because that's normal and healthy in relationships, but very difficult for some of us who feel complete overwhelm and emotional, uh, in intensely emotional about the thought of someone not being there. And then it, we jump directly from zero to 100 to they're going to leave me and I can't cope, right? And that's kind of the BPD models. We swing from those things and it can be really overwhelming. Like I've talked about for years, one of the best ways I think BPD is described is as an emotional burn victim. Like everything is super, super sensitive and we just almost can't like 
we, we we just can't cope because we don't have the skills. That's why DBT is so effective and why, you know, that's what I actually recommend, but we'll get into that. Um, okay. So then how do I stop these attachments, attachments to older women that give me the slightest bit of affection or attention? Now, the best way is to honestly find a therapist who does DBT and get to work there. You can let your therapist know. I don't know if your therapist does DBT or understands borderline personality disorder or attachment-based issues. I don't know which one it is. I'm not here to diagnose you. Just telling you some things to maybe talk about, ask about. Um, but canceling appointments and not seeing them isn't going to make it go away. But I respect your your effort to try to keep it at bay right now until you figure out what's going on. And so the attachment can, that, that urge that you feel, that deep, like, deep, deep urge that you're feeling that's pulling you toward people can be assuaged. We can find a way to calm it and to satisfy its urge, but it has to happen in therapy. Usually it's DBT or some inner child work and attachment-based work where we, we learn to listen to that child of us, child you. We get into conversations with her about the upsets and, you know, the things with your mom and the pain and the trauma like I, I think there's a lot to unpack there and a lot of a lot of healing to be done. And it is okay to feel somewhat attached to your therapist where you're like, I really don't want them to leave because we've been doing so much work together and I really enjoy talking to them. However, when we feel like we need them and it's an obsession, that's where it tips into that borderline type. You know, if they leave me, I'll be lost forever. Uh, you know, it's that ultra sensitivity we have to the, the potential for us being abandoned. Um, that's really the best way I is through that therapy process through either, you know, DBT, even a trauma specialist could be really beneficial. Usually they understand a lot of DBT as well as attachment based things because that kind of goes hand in hand with trauma. But those are the ways that I would go about it. I also recommend if you're looking for some DBT workbooks to maybe offer to your therapist to start working on it. They're all in my Amazon store. So you just go to amazon.com forward slash shop shop forward slash Katie Morton. And all of them will be in there. So you can check those out. But I hope that that helps. I think, I mean, that, that really, I've answered all of the questions so far. And you really just have to keep us posted because it's definitely, it, I want you to know that you have every right to be experiencing things the way you're experiencing them. Unfortunately, you'd never had, you know, your mom was not supportive. She didn't help you. You came to her with a problem when you were a child and she did not offer any nurture. And so, working on that, even in EMDR, if you were able to do EMDR for the trauma, working on finding that nurturing person or uh, but like a, it could even be an imagined person could be really healing for you. And I think there's some work with that, like nurturing that inner child of yourself, like being able to be that nurturing person. Maybe if you have a pet or a child, imagine, yeah, you had a child right in February. Um, just considering the, the love and compassion you feel for that child and imagine that that's that's what you're needing and how can we give that to you as well you know I don't know just some things to think about that's the direction that I really feel it needs to go in order for you to get some relief of these symptoms because the one thing that people just don't understand about those of us with BPD is just how fucking uncomfortable it is no one wants to feel emotionally volatile and all over the place no one wants to worry all the time that people are going to leave them it's it's really exhausting and really uncomfortable and so I think those are some of the ways that we can get you some relief. Okay, let's move into question number eight. And it says, hi, Katie, I've struggled with body image for five years. 
I was never fat or anything. Other people actually liked my figure. But did you? I'm curious because that's interesting. That's interesting. But I just wanted to be skinny. I was eating really healthy and exercised moderately. But still, I wasn't skinny enough. For who? I have a question. So one day I said to myself that if the only way for me to be skinny was to starve myself, then I'm going to do that. I really lost weight. But after four months of restrictions, I began to binge. Of course, our body has needs. I didn't want to gain. So I again starved myself and fell into a binge purge cycle. After four months, I stopped starving myself, but still couldn't stop binging. So I started self-inducing vomiting. I'm stuck in this cycle. I'm only 16 and my parents don't know. I don't want to do this to myself, but I can't imagine telling all that to my parents. I don't know what to do. Okay, I love this question. And the truth is, we're using, I mean, we need to get you in to see someone. So you're 16. So technically, you don't need your parents to know about it. But it would really, really help. Now, we don't have to tell our parents about this. But I would, my, I'm urging you, prepare, I have videos about how to tell our parents we need help. Search for those. I talk about how we need to break it down into three to five very short bullet points. Like, you know, hey, mom, or whoever you want to talk to. Hey, dad, whoever you want to talk to. If you want to talk to both, that's fine. You know, I want to talk to you about something. I've really been not feeling well lately. And I really would like to start seeing a therapist. You don't even have to give more details than that. They'll probably ask, but you don't have to give it. And then say, I just really would like you guys to help me find someone that's on our insurance or that you can take me to or sign me up so I can get on a wait list. However, your system of care works where you live, ask them to help you with that. And then we get going because the sooner we get in to see someone, the better. Because eating disorders are just coping skills. It could be a coping skill for our body, bad body image. It could be a coping skill for depression, anxiety, a lack of self-confidence. It could be coming from anywhere. It could be a past trauma. I'm, I don't know. I don't have any indication of that in this question, but I'm just throwing things out there. It could be any number of things. And we need to figure out what the, why it's here, what purpose it's serving, possibly get a dietitian down the, down the road. But again, we don't have to tell our parents everything right out the gate. We just need to get in to see someone. And so... That's what I would say to them. And if they say like, you seem fine to me, because some parents will do that. Well, you don't seem depressed to me or you don't seem to be having issues and be like, I've been hiding it from you because, you know, I didn't know how to cope and I thought I could deal with it on my own, but I can't. Okay. So rewind this back. Listen to that again. Write that down. Just keep it very simple and and ask them again for the help. So if they say you don't really look, you know, blah, blah, and you say, that's because I've been hiding from you. I thought I could deal with it, but I can't. That's why I need help. Then we ask again. So would you help me find a therapist on our insurance or whatever? And um, pay for the copay for my appointments. Can we, can we do that? You know, um, let's get in to get some support. Now, when you're looking for a therapist, when you call, maybe go on a walk or get out of the house to call and make an appointment. Um, make sure you ask them if they work with eating disorders. Your parents do not have to know all of this. Uh, I know that you're not 18 and people always worry about confidentiality, but therapists are not supposed to tell parents everything. They're only supposed to tell them things that could be dangerous. Like, like I've talked about this before, but my law and ethics professor used to call it sex drugs and rock and roll. And it's like when there are things that are dangerous, like if you're having unprotected sex and we, you just found out your boyfriend has an STD or he's much older and we're, we have to report it. You know, there's a lot of things that we're going to have to tell parents about. But when it comes to eating disorders and your work in therapy, I don't really see a reason for that until maybe you're ready if you are ready. Right. And that's something you can talk with your therapist about and let them know, like, hey, I don't want my parents knowing about this for this, that, or whatever reason, and you can figure out what the best way forward is. But 
please get in to see someone. Know that it does get better. Our eating disorders exist for a reason. We just have to figure out what it is. And then we have to find other better ways to cope. Because like you said, it's just, it starts to feel out of control. That's the the biggest lie that our eating disorder tells us is it's all under control. It gives us this like false sense of control, which is really not control at all. But it does get better, okay? Just remember that. And also, please, please, please purchase the book Eating in the Light of the Moon. I cannot recommend it enough. Such a beautiful book, especially for those of us suffering from eating disorders. Okay, final question. Question number nine says, Hi, Katie. In your latest episode with Cheryl Burke, you talked about grooming. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about this subject, including ways to heal if you have been groomed, especially if the situation with the abuser was better than with the parents. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, that's so common, unfortunately. And when it comes uh, truly grooming is abuse and it's it's a trauma and but it's a trauma bond I don't know if you guys know I don't know if I've talked about that before I know I plan on doing a video about it it's on my list you know I have this like humongous running list of things and it's always you know not in order and things get out of whack but I've been wanting to do a video about trauma bonding and unfortunately grooming because it's done it's a manipulation it causes us to bond with our abuser and to think that our abuser is actually the person caring for us and in a lot of ways it can be better than with our parents. I've had I had a patient in the past whose parents were horrifically abusive and the person that was sexually abusing them would like take them to dinner and, and make sure they, you know, uh, had the stuff for school. And like, it was like they were the, the only half parent that they had. It just unfortunately came along with this trauma and this abuse. And they stayed in that relationship for a long time because it was better. And then there was a lot of guilt and shame associated with that. And I, I really... When it comes to healing from grooming and healing from abuse, it's really trauma work. It's really either, you know, EMDR, somatic experiencing, even just traditional talk therapy and putting a trauma timeline together. Because I, I would guess in this case, you not only have trauma from the abuse, but you also have trauma from your parents. Because if, if it was better better situation with the abuser, your parents pro probably and most likely were also abusive. So it was like, pick your poison of abuse, you know? But I really think, doing that trauma work will will help you overcome the grooming. Grooming itself is not, there's not like a specific way to recover. A lot of the recovery is in that trauma work and healing from the, the abuse and kind of, in my experience, you guys can let me know in the comments if you don't agree, but in my experience with my patients, a lot of it can, sorry, my nose is itching. A lot of it can feel like we're untangling this web because grooming is so manipulative and we can have certain beliefs that actually aren't founded and are, are potentially the complete opposite or like completely false right and so we can we can struggle to like make sense of it and untangle it and it can feel very scrambled which trauma memories are already scrambled so it's super confusing and that's why working with a trauma specialist to better understand to to talk about that relationship and the dynamic and it's okay if you still have love and care for them that's very common but we have to process through that we have to talk about it we have to feel heard and understood when it comes to that topic and, and find our way through so we can allow ourselves to like sit with all that comes up, feel held by our therapist in that room, feel comforted, feel heard, feel understood. And yeah, it's just that that's really the only way through is just through trauma work. And, and whether that again is EMTR or talk therapy or schema therapy or somatic experiencing. And there's even brain spotting, which is kind of similar to EMDR, but more focused on just your eyes and eye movement and um, focusing on some sensations, um, you know, things that are charged for you. There's, 
yeah, I mean, that's really, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I'm missing here, but it's, it's really untangling that because when we were groomed, you know, the boundaries can be blurred. We can think that this person is, you know, we're in a relationship with them or whatever, you know, all of this stuff. We can think that it comes along with a lot of shame, self-doubt, embarrassment, guilt, all those things and untangling that in a healthy environment like therapy is, is really what I think is best. Um, and I'm happy to talk more about grooming if you want, but unfortunately it's, you know, it's a tactic a lot of abusers use to get their, you know, get children or get people to, to do what they want and they do it, you know, as a way to manipulate so they can abuse us. And I'm, I'm sorry that that happened to you. Um, but if get into therapy as soon as you can. Thank you guys so much for listening. These questions were good. They were definitely deeper and darker this week, but I'm fine with that. I don't want you to think that anything is off limits or that we can't talk about, you know, certain things. I want you to know that all questions are okay here. Everything is, you know, welcome that I'm happy to answer and talk about the quote unquote taboo or, you know, hard to talk about questions because we need answers, right? And I feel like we need to be able to have conversations about it. And as always, you know, leave your comments below. Like, did I leave something out? Did you wish I would have mentioned something else? Did you feel like I didn't give you the answer that you thought? Like, give me some feedback and let me know. I'm happy to, you know, try to do better always. I'm always trying to do better. Um, but yeah, please, please share this podcast if you found it helpful. Please tell people about it. Please leave some reviews if you get an opportunity to. Thank you so much for listening and watching. Have a wonderful week, you guys. And I'll see you next time. Bye.